2: Due to the graphic nature of this cult's crimes, listener discretion is advised. This episode includes discussions that some people may find offensive. We advise extreme caution for children under 13.
3: In the 1990s, Russia was in the midst of a seismic socioeconomic shift. As communism fell and a democratic republic took its place, the values of communism were washed away— For many, the Russia they knew was gone. It was replaced by a new, confusing, frightening world of economic competition.
2: Many yearned to go back to the old Russia, communist Russia, a world they knew and understood, a world in which they knew their place.
3: Then, from the chaos, arose a prophet. He is gentle, comforting. He promised his followers that he could deliver them to paradise. He offers them shelter in a secret village hidden in the Siberian wilderness ruled by the old ways.
2: For the confused lost souls who followed him, it felt like he was more than a prophet. He was God himself. He gave them security, love, and spiritual guidance. He saved them from the mayhem of this new Russia. In return, he only asked for their money, their possessions, and their freedom. Hi, I'm Greg Polson.
3: And I'm Vanessa Richardson.
2: And this is Cults. Today, we're taking a deep dive into the strange story of Vissarion, the Messiah of Siberia, and his pacifist doomsday cult, the Church of the Last Testament.
3: You can listen to previous episodes of Cults, as well as all of ParCast's other shows, wherever you listen to podcasts. A new episode comes out every Tuesday.
2: A lot of you have asked how you can help support the show. And if you enjoy the podcast, the best way to do that is to leave a five-star review.
3: You can also find us on Facebook and Instagram as at Parcast and on Twitter at Parcast Network. In part one of our two-part series, we decoded some of the mysterious backstory of cult leader Sergei Torop, better known as Visarian.
2: Born in Russia in 1961, Sergei grew up during the height of the Cold War, when Russia was severely censored. At the time, religion was virtually outlawed. Yet Sergei always had a fascination with faith and spirituality, one that followed him into adulthood.
3: By the start of the 90s, when Sergei was in his early 30s, the Soviet Union was dismantled and freedom of religion returned to Russia. It was during this time that Sergei decided to start his own religion. Appropriating aspects from Christianity, Hinduism, Buddhism, and other esoteric religions, he created the Church of the Last Testament, eventually gaining as many as 5,000 members.
2: Designed to be a doomsday cult in everything but practice, Sergei took on the name Vissarion, claiming to be the reincarnation of Jesus, come back to preach a final doctrine.
3: Though his priorities, it seemed, may have been less focused on faith and more on himself, his eagerness to lead a cult seemed more about validation and attention than any true sense of duty to a higher power.
2: Vanessa's going to take over on the psychology here. A note, Vanessa is not a licensed psychologist or psychiatrist, but she has done a lot of research for the show.
3: Thanks, Greg. Through most of Sergei's life, he felt disenfranchised by the world around him. Isolated from his hard-working parents and with few friends to confide in, Sergei felt unseen and misunderstood. As he grew older, he began to use his self-proclaimed divinity as a means to take control of the world around him and feed his need for attention.
2: But this narcissistic complex was not readily recognizable to many of his followers. Today, we'll explore who Vasarian's followers were and what drove them to seek comfort in the arms of this self-proclaimed messiah. Since the fall of the Soviet Union in 1991, Russia faced a plethora of problems. 25% of its population lived below the poverty line. Life expectancy had fallen, birth rates were at an all-time low, and the GDP was essentially halved.
3: While the government struggled to pull itself together, the people were beginning to question whether or not this so-called democratization was really working. Many wanted to go back to the way things were. Their lives had not improved within the transition to democracy, and they longed for a world they understood. These were the type of people eventually drawn to Vissarion and his church.
2: In 1993, the 32-year-old Vissarion began to tour the remotest regions of Siberia, He was looking for a place to build his community, a place where his followers could live in purity and peace. This village would be a proverbial ark capable of surviving the apocalypse.
3: Vissarion and his followers wanted freedom from the government, but they wanted to isolate themselves for other reasons, too. In the wake of the Soviet Union, the Russian Orthodox Church had returned to power, and over 2,000 religious cults had sprung up around Russia. It was a spiritual free-for-all that felt confusing and messy. Additionally, the isolation of Siberia offered Vassarion a chance to escape a world that had rebuked him. Vassarion had always felt like an outcast. This may stem in part from a lack of attention from his parents. Due to poor economic conditions growing up, Bissarion spent little time with his folks, and after their divorce when he was seven, things only got worse.
2: Bissarion wanted to create a community where he could be in control of others, where all the attention would be on him, and he could follow his own proclivities unimpeded. In June 1993, Vasarian traveled to the Taiga Forest near Lake Tiberkul at the foot of the Suchaya Mountain in Siberia. Vasarian had been there once before, in January of 1993. Something had called him back.
3: Located in the southern part of Siberia, the area was beautiful. A lush forest at the foot of a mountain with a freshwater river running through it. More importantly, it was remote. Located more than 2,000 miles from Moscow, it was the perfect spot to begin construction on a new society.
2: Beginning in the spring of 1995, Vissarion and his followers began construction on the first building, called the Abode of Dawn.
3: The Abode of Dawn was to be Vissarion's personal residence, essentially a huge mansion, which would act as the group's home until the community's village was constructed. According to Vissarion's twelve-volume book of ideology, the Last Testament, the universe was created from two explosions or big bangs. The first big bang created the universe and nature. The second big bang created man and the human soul, which was naturally pure. However, over time, man was introduced to a virus known as evil.
2: In Vissarion's The Last Testament evil is considered to be any kind of negative thought or emotion. It is also stated that evil itself was introduced by what Vissarion calls outer space minds.
3: These outer space minds were aliens who taught man how to develop technology and society over time. Unfortunately for us, this ultimately stirred our material wants, which caused us to lose our spirituality. Thus, in order for us to return to a much humbler and faith-driven lifestyle, an apocalypse was needed.
2: From the beginning, Vissarion argued that there would be an end of light which would render the earth destroyed, although the specifics of said apocalypse have changed over the years. Initially, he prophesied a great flood, like in the book of Genesis. Later, he claimed nuclear destruction would be our undoing, followed by technological genocide. But while the means have grown steadily more sci-fi, the ends have never changed. Everyone would die, except Vissarion and his followers.
3: Russians had just watched their entire government and economy collapse. The world they knew had already ended. For many, it didn't seem impossible that it would happen again, and this time on a much grander scale. People flocked to him by the thousands. His membership hit 5,000 at its peak, but becoming Vissarion's follower had a few caveats.
2: They were asked to sell all their material possessions and donate all the proceeds to Vissarion's church. Second, they were told that they had to follow Vasarian's instructions absolutely.
3: Once they'd given him the money, followers entered a strict dietary regimen. No meats or any kind of animal byproducts, no drinking or smoking. They gave up all technology, as Vissarion believed it spread ill intent and evil. Furthermore, there was no exchange of currency allowed within the community. Money was forbidden.
2: Besides, any money they did have was donated to Vissarion. Most of that money was supposedly funneled back into the community through expansion, infrastructure, and general upkeep. But while money was forbidden within the cult, the cult members themselves were still responsible for turning a profit for the church.
3: Once you became a Visarianite, as they were called, your job became peddling Vissarian merchandise at all of Vissarion's speaking engagements. The merchandise included CDs, books, pamphlets, even old VHS tapes. The proceeds were funneled back into the church.
2: Some called it commune living. More called it a pyramid scheme.
3: According to former behavioral analyst for the FBI, Dr. Joe Navarro, many of the expectations Visarian set for his cult align with common aspects of cult leader psychology, namely, Visarian's requirement for blind obedience and willingness to exploit his followers financially. Visarian's followers became fully dependent on him for everything, forced to pay tribute and give adoration constantly in exchange for food and shelter. This kind of manipulation ensures that followers cannot leave. Essentially, once moved into the community, they were prisoners. We'll learn more about Visarian's insular village after this.
0: This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. Forget dark alleys and cemeteries. For some, the gym is the scariest place of all. But it doesn't have to be.
2: for the next three years, starting in 1995, Visarian commanded his followers to build a small village at the base of the Suchaya Mountain beneath his mega mansion. This village was magical. Each house was built to resemble a fairy tale home small and charming and utterly nostalgic.
3: Visarian said he wanted his village to inspire happiness and whimsy, to truly feel like a special place. But in reality, he was using psychological conditioning to twist his followers' perceptions of reality. This was only one of many tricks highlighted by Dr. Margaret Singer in her New York Times article, The Psychology of Cults. Bissarion used the environment to paint a picture of providence.
2: To his followers, this must have been amazing to see, their master's world coming to fruition. It must have truly felt like magic, or in this case, divine providence.
3: But Visarian's mansion was on a mountain overlooking a fantasy land that he had built. He was big brother, ever watchful. Not only did this feed his need to control the people around him, it reminded his followers that they were the chosen ones. This was paradise. If they thought otherwise, if they doubted him, he would see it. He was a god.
2: Although just because Visarian's followers were quick to fall in line, didn't mean the rest of the world was following suit. Outside his cult, he was seen as an eccentric, sometimes devious man, as became evident in March 1995.
3: Vissarion was giving a lecture in Russia when a man stormed the room. The man, Shenya, was looking for his estranged wife, Tatyana. Tatyana had converted to Visarian's church during the early 90s and had stolen Shenya's children to live with other cult members. Shenya had spent years tracking Tatiana down. When he found her, he decided to confront his wife and the narcissistic prophet who had stolen her away.
2: Shenya stormed the stage and confronted Vissarion. Tatiana, who had been in the audience, begged her husband to stop. She told him that it was over. She and the children weren't coming back. Shenya refused to leave and demanded Vissarion relinquish control of his family.
3: When Vissarion told Shenya it wasn't up to him, Shenya lunged at Vissarion and beat him in front of his followers. It was a horrifying scene. Ultimately, Shenya was pulled off Vissarion and fled. Vissarion was quickly escorted out of the building and brought back to his new home in the mountains to recover.
2: Meanwhile, as Vissarion was recovering in Utopia, Russia's new government began pushing back against the growing cult activity that had sprung up in the wake of the USSR. Any religion that the government didn't approve of came into the line of fire. In early 1996, Russian Orthodox Bishop Krill spoke publicly about the vast influx of religions invading Russia. He feared the Russian Orthodox Church was on the verge of extinction. He called it a war of spiritual colonization designed to destroy Russia's cultural identity.
3: In the wake of his speech, the Russian people began to grow worried about the number of cults in Russia. The government, working in tandem with the Russian Orthodox Church, launched a campaign of religious suppression, targeting cults and smaller religious groups, aiming to drive them out of Russia.
2: By November 1997, President Boris Yeltsin signed a new law differentiating what was a traditional and a non-traditional religion. The law restricted the activities of non-traditional religious organizations and required them to re-register with the government. The government was then allowed to review the religious organization and, if they saw fit, disband it.
3: Ever a true narcissist, Vissarion took this personally. He saw it as a ploy to destroy the last church and testament. Cautious, he ordered his lieutenants to fill out the necessary forms to ensure their survival, and prepared to fight if the government moved to eradicate them.
2: But luckily for Vissarion, the government largely had no idea who he was, and happily allowed the budding religion to re-register. As a matter of fact the biggest hassle seemed to be traveling the 2000 miles back to moscow to turn in the paperwork
3: it seems that vasarian's choice of location was more ideal than he thought despite the need to travel long distances to get anywhere this isolation meant that few people paid much attention to him and his followers they could exist undisturbed and under the radar
2: a good thing for them too By the end of 1997, a new policy was enacted by the Russian government called spiritual security.
3: This idea of spiritual security was proposed by the Russian Orthodox Church and was designed to stamp out religions that the church didn't like. It didn't just target cults. It also went after various world religions, including Islam and Buddhism. Some even argued that these religions were created by the West to stop Russia's advancement towards democracy. It was an attempt by the church to regain control over Russia and weed out competitors.
2: At the center of these attacks on religion was the European Federation of Centers of Research and Information on Sectarianism in Russia, or FECRIS. This center was designed to research and rescue individuals affected by sectarian religions. In reality, Russia used fekris as a weapon to bully minority religions out of existence through intimidation and bureaucracy. Worst of all was the man who ran it, Alexander Dvorkin.
3: Dvorkin used his power as head of Fekris to spread the idea that most cults functioned under totalitarian rule and warped the minds of their worshippers. However, Dvorkin didn't discriminate between cults and minority religions. He openly called Mormons conmen who ran an international business to fund occult rituals, and argued that Pentecostals sought to help the United States invade Russia. But again, while Dvorkin worried about bigger fish, Vissarion's community continued to grow.
2: By 1998, the Church of the Last Testament's village was completed. It was named the Town of Masters, and was only about 2.5 square miles wide. But Vissarion owned the 620 acres surrounding it, and as more people joined, the village
3: grew in stride. To support himself and his community, Vissarion applied for grants from various European unions and ecological groups to fund his utopian society. He did this by selling it as an eco-friendly village, devoid of any fossil fuels, and using minimal livestock. In fact, the community eventually became part of the Social Ecological Association, which studied communities' interactions with wildlife in hopes of improving man's relationship with nature.
2: It seemed life was good for Vasarian and his community. But behind the scenes, Vasarian's rule was one of strict regulation and disturbing customs. He was grooming his followers into total subservience, solidifying his position as God.
3: For the past eight years, Sergei Torop had built a religious community around the myth that he was Jesus Christ. Lost, confused souls from around Russia flocked to him
2: his small village eventually grew to the size of New Jersey and became completely self-sufficient and autonomous from the surrounding world. As this community grew, it swallowed up nearby communities, converting their populace into followers. Eventually, Vissarion's community consisted of over 40 villages in the surrounding area, bringing membership close to around 5,000 people by the early 2000s.
3: Together, all of this became known as the City of Sun, home of the Community of United Faith and Visarian. Life in Visarian's community was simple. All advanced technology was banned. That meant no TV, internet, or radio. Thus, most of the community dedicated itself to farming or some kind of craft. This could be metalworking, wood carving, sewing, or fine arts.
2: Anything created was either traded within the community or sold outside of it to bring in revenue for major construction projects or to purchase medicine. Outside of these two needs, the community was largely self-sustained.
3: An interesting note here is that while the use of money was forbidden, Vissarion gave the families within the community a monthly stipend of about 80 euros, this money was meant to buy tools and provisions from neighboring villages and could not be used within the community itself.
2: Any food that was harvested was taken by Vasarian and stored away for later. If this is starting to sound familiar, it's because it sounds a lot like communism.
3: Ironic, really. Vasarian is employing the exact same system he denounced growing up. But this isn't too out of the ordinary. Children have long replicated the behavior of their parents subconsciously, even into their adult lives. This concept of imitation is called mirroring and has been shown to have universal resonance, according to the Psychology Journal. That being said, not everything a child does is the direct result of watching their parents. External factors also have an influence. Community, politics, wealth. For Vasarian, it's clear that his religious grandmother had an effect on him, as did the socioeconomics of the time. He replicates the world of his childhood, making himself the governing body.
2: Despite his questionable ethics, Vasarian does display ingenuity when establishing his cult.
3: He presumably chose this communist system as a way to tap into many of his followers' desire to return to simpler times and have a precedent excuse for keeping all the cult's profits.
2: On weekends, followers would trek up to Vissarion's temple, known as Temple Peak. It is here that Vissarion gave sermons for his thousands of followers. Interestingly, while Vissarion was strict about day-to-day life, his sermons were often entirely ambiguous. He often preached vague lessons that never seemed to cover any one thing in
3: particular. Which was, in fact, the point. Vissarion wanted his message to be interpreted individually. By being vague, his followers could apply his messages towards any part of their life that needed guidance or attention— it was the one area of life in which they had some control, the way they chose to understand him spiritually.
2: But every other part of life was carefully regimented. Children within the community were sent to a Vasarian school, where they were taught about Vasarian and how to follow the Last Testament. Anything prior to Vasarian's birth is ignored. Children were also conditioned based on their gender.
3: As children grew older, boys were segregated towards duties like construction, crafting, and farming, while girls took on a much more traditional role. Their duties were essentially to be housewives. They were taught how to care for children, do laundry, clean the house, and cook.
2: The most troubling aspect is that women were taught to never question men, especially Vissarion. To make matters worse, women were forbidden from holding any leadership positions and weren't even allowed to speak out against wrongdoing or issues. Should any girls try to fight back against this overt oppression, they were labeled unruly and poisonous to the community. This behavior was labeled the women's disease.
3: Women were then put through a sort of re-education in Vassarion's values that, though largely unknown, seemed to be a kind of brainwashing. This continued until the girls or women were no longer considered problems.
2: Suffice it to say, this was incredibly troubling, not to mention misogynistic. But for the most part, the community never rebuked this treatment of women, largely because disagreements are forbidden within the community. They attract negative energy and are avoided at all costs.
3: One example of this is in farming. When given choices for multiple crops, the community always went with the first choice to avoid disputes. It didn't matter if it was corn, carrots, wheat... So long as it's first, they'll all unanimously decide to plant that particular crop. This style of farming caused several bad harvests due to poor decision-making, yet the community didn't care so long as everyone was in agreement.
2: But this was not the only odd aspect of Vissarion's community. Something that has stood out over the years are the use of his portraits. There's a portrait of Vissarion in every home.
3: We've already discussed the Big Brother aspect of Vissarion's village. It's a powerful psychological tool meant to instill fear should anyone step out of line. This tactic was quite popular in old propaganda campaigns, such as the famous U.S. Loose Lips Sink Ships poster from World War II. French philosopher Michel Foucault called this the watchtower theory, or panopticism. The idea is to control a population by creating a symbol of standard that constantly looms over a populace, an inactive monitoring system.
2: Michel Foucault first observed this behavior within French prisons. In his observations, a prison tower, whether active or not, kept prisoners in line, solely through its presence.
3: For Vissarion's cult members, their messiah's picture was more than a symbol of their faith. It's a deterrent for subversive behavior. This gives the populace the feeling that they're constantly being observed, watched from all sides. For Visarian, this tactic was twofold, as it created a way to keep his members in line and help to build an omnipotent persona.
2: But portraits proved to not be enough. Visarian also created an enforcement group called the United Family to help him keep order.
3: The United family were Vasarian's vanguard, his primary line of defense. Not only did they get nicer houses, but they were afforded more privileges, such as the use of power tools, construction equipment, microphones, cameras, and more recently, the internet. They essentially
2: acted as spies, ratting out any dissenters within the cult. They also kept a watchful eye on visitors. They vetted any visitors to the cult ensuring no troublemakers were allowed into the community. They confiscated the visitors' passports and only allowed visitors to leave when they saw fit.
3: We'll learn more about living inside Visarian's cult when we return.
0: right at home.
3: Go to prettylitter.com and use code spotify for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.
2: Now, back to the story.
3: At the turn of the 1990s, the Soviet Union was in dire straits. The old system was all but completely uprooted and replaced overnight. For some, the idea of joining Vissarion's seemingly socialist, egalitarian society was a way of returning to the old Soviet Union's collective society.
2: During an interview for SBS Dateline in 2013, one resident said, quote, it's like a mini Soviet Union, the best bits of the Soviet Union, that trust, that absence of selfishness, end quote.
3: Religion had long been outlawed in the Soviet Union through state-sponsored atheism. This idea of non-religion had left many people hungry for faith, for some kind of spiritual guidance. And like most cult leaders, Bessarian preyed upon this need. He promised people hope, guidance, and a path to salvation. One resident recalled her first time seeing Bessarian saying, quote, it was as if a flood came down from the sky and my body was shivering non-stop, end quote.
2: Some answers, however, are much more mundane. Some simply come to Vissarion's community to find peace from the hustle and bustle of the city. One resident, Tamara, a 24-year-old painter, came just to paint and ended up staying to continue her art in peace.
3: Visarian successfully isolated his cult from the rest of the world, making it easy to condition them however he saw fit. It's what allowed his cult to thrive even up to this day.
2: He avoided direct contact with his followers, mostly cloistering himself in his mansion. Despite rules against technology, reports said that Visarian's mansion was equipped with TVs, central air conditioning, and luxury products.
3: According to Dr. Joe Navarro, cult leaders routinely subject their followers to meager living situations, while exempting themselves from the very rules they set forth. Because many of them are narcissists, they believe they're special, and the rules don't apply to them. They deserve nice things, so they take them.
2: By the turn of the 21st century, Vasarian's community of united faith had grown to 5,000 members. Making them one of the strongest cults in Russia, Vissarion claimed that he actually had over 50,000 members worldwide, though he has little to back up that statement.
3: But with that growth came attention. Vissarion had drifted onto the Russian government's radar, particularly that of the Anti Cult Committee and Task Force, FECRIS, still headed by Alexander Dvorkin.
2: Alexander Devorkin and Fecris had been busy persecuting other cults, minority religions, and offshoots of Christianity, such as the Pentecostal Church and the Mormon Church of Latter-day Saints. But as Vissarion became more popular, Devorkin began to scrutinize the church, trying to dig up anything to tarnish Vissarion's reputation.
3: He accused Visarian of using gangland-style tactics to steal his followers' money and feed a luxurious lifestyle in his own private mansion. Dvorkin even went so far as to compare Visarian to other infamous doomsday cults, like Jonestown or the People's Temple.
2: Yet Dvorkin had no means of backing up these claims. All of his followers had willingly given up their money to him, and there were no outright signs of illegal activity. Dvorkin was stymied.
3: But things changed a year later, in 2001.
2: Now 40, Vissarion started to experiment with some of the rules and guidelines dictating his people, most notably the introduction of polygamy.
3: Vasarian said he wanted to increase the birth rate within the village, and since women outnumbered men, this seemed like the right way to do it. The rules were simple. A man could take on another wife or partner, provided that his wife approved. The problem was that wives weren't allowed to protest, as protesting meant you had the woman's disease and were spreading negativity within the community.
2: Vissarion's wife didn't care much for this idea. Yet Visarian blew her off, saying, quote, "...for me, all people are equally close, and I carry large responsibility for them all. So it is I need to be free." My wife is now learning how to correctly see and regard me, to understand she's not the only woman in my life. There are a thousand others." End quote.
3: Not long after that, Vissarion approached a young Bulgarian girl living in his community. She was 14 at the time. While reports have conflicted as to what happened exactly, the general consensus was that Vasarian tried to statutory rape her. She refused and was forced to flee the village.
2: The Bulgarian community within visarian's cult were furious. Many called for his arrest, but Vissarion's influence with the local police, who were also members of visarian's cult, and the lack of evidence prevented him from being detained. As such, the majority of the Bulgarian population abandoned Vissarion's cult.
3: Not long after that, visarian's wife, Liuba, also abandoned him. Though never explicitly stated, it's believed she left because of Vasarian's desire to take on another wife and his attempted rape of the Bulgarian minor.
2: In regard to his wife leaving him, Vasarian said, She was the one woman who would open up the whole world of women to me. Through her, I knew I could understand all women, what women's weaknesses are. There are now lots of women in
3: love with me. This behavior is actually quite common within cults. Over time, many leaders begin to push strange sexual practices or try to take on multiple sexual partners. The best example of this is the Nexium sex cult, which in 2017 lured women into its ranks only to sell them into sex trafficking.
2: By the end of 2001, Vasarian had found a new wife, a 19 year old girl whom he'd helped raise in the village. Again, Vasarian was over 40 at the time
3: things would remain quiet for the next year. Then, starting around the end of 2002, Vissarion took a bold stance. He started writing letters to various leaders within the Russian hierarchy, pleading for them to hear his case.
2: The first of these letters went to President Vladimir Putin on December 21, 2002. In it, he pleaded with the president about how the world was in chaos with too many false religions and not enough faith in the true religion, his. He asked Vladimir Putin to make the Church of the Last Testament the official religion in Russia. He boasted that he could unite all Russians under his faith.
3: Vissarion would go on to write two similar letters in the spring of 2003, one to the chairman of Central Spiritual Government for Muslims in Russia, and the other to the patriarch of the Russian Orthodox Church. Neither letter got a response. Down but not out, Vissarion decided it was the perfect time to announce an impending apocalypse.
2: In mid-2003, Vissarion announced that by 2013, the end of the world would come.
3: Vissarion's followers began to stockpile goods. The birth rate within the community lapsed that of Moscow, as cultists began to work to repopulate the world after the end of days. The cult also pushed to convert new followers. Vissarion himself even went on TV to help spread the word.
2: In 2005, Visarian appeared on the television talk shows DK Raduga and Five Evenings. The goal was to widen his appeal and entice new members, but it wasn't meant to be.
3: <laughs> on both shows, hosts made fun of him. They tried to make Visarian perform miracles and admit that he was Jesus, but Vasarian refused he came across as silly and nonsensical.
2: Word quickly spread of his debacle on television, and while most of his followers empathized with their leader's frustration, there were some who were growing concerned over his legitimacy.
3: Following the television appearances, people began to lose faith in the church and left. But those who stayed only escalated their apocalyptic behavior.
2: By December 31st, 2012, everyone in the community was prepared for the apocalypse. Some even contemplated suicide, which Vasarian condoned, providing they didn't hurt anyone else in the process. The village sat on the edge of their seats, and as 2013 arrived, nothing happened.
3: Vissarion's followers were confused. They looked to their leader for guidance, but he provided no real guidance.
2: People were outraged. Soon, they began to abandon the cult.
3: Splinter groups began breaking off, claiming Visarian wasn't the messiah, but still following his teachings to some extent.
2: One such group was the Shamans of the Last Testament, which formed in 2003, though they quickly fell apart shortly after leaving the community. No other notable sect was able to endure without Vissarion either.
3: Furthermore, the government further clamped down on cult activity. By 2016, Russia had passed additional laws criminalizing all private religious speech, not sanctioned by the government. Religion was once again controlled by the state and the Russian Orthodox Church. As a byproduct, cults quickly fell quiet or disbanded to avoid trouble.
2: Vissarion, it seems, followed suit.
3: Since his community began to downsize, Vissarion seemingly slipped into obscurity. Almost nothing is known about his recent activity outside of the fact that he seems to still be alive somewhere in the Siberian wilderness. Hearsay indicates that he still lives in his mansion, his dwindling fairy tale village down below.
2: Despite the fact that his community still exists, it has become somewhat of an urban legend these days. Few people have heard of the cult, and those who have know little about it. The followers keep to themselves, so as to avoid suspicion and government intervention. It's unclear as to how many followers remain, although the number has dwindled significantly, which, in a way, only adds to the mystique.
3: A mysterious village nestled into the Siberian wilderness, led by an elusive Christ figure. It sounds like a fairy tale in and of itself, and yet they're still out there, thousands of miles from civilization, awaiting an apocalypse that will never come
2: and as the cult grows smaller more insular and slowly fades from public memory perhaps Vassarion finally achieved what he always wanted total isolation lost to time forgotten by the world at large left to his own devices in his cavernous mansion worshipped but alone
3: Thanks again for tuning in to Cults. We'll be back with another episode next Tuesday.
2: Some of you have asked how you can help the show. If you enjoy Cults, the best way to help is to leave a five-star review wherever you're listening. You can find Cults and all of ParCast's podcasts on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Google Play, CastBox, TuneIn, or in your favorite podcast directory.
3: You can also find us on Facebook and Instagram as at ParCast and Twitter at ParCastNetwork. We'll
2: see you next time.
3: Cults was created by Max Cutler and is a production of Cutler Media and is part of the ParCast Network. It is produced by Max and Ron Cutler, sound design by Michael Langsner, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro, Paul Mahler, Maggie Admire, and Carly Madden. Cults is written by Michael Pindus and stars Greg Polson and Vanessa Richardson.